should know it pretty well. And let's let's get right into Parsha's Vayichi, which means and he lived. Verse 28, Vayichi Yaakov Be'eretz Mitzrayim. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt. Shiva Esrei Shono for 17 years. Vayichi Yimei Yaakov Shnei Chayov. And the years, the days, years of his life, Sheva Shonim Barboim Ashana were seven years and 40 years, and 140 years, 147 years. Says Rashi, and for this you have to look into a Torah. Normally, when you have a you know, two parshas, two parshas, there is a separation in the Talmud, in the, in the Torah scroll, between one parsha and another. So there's some empty space where there's no words that divides between one portion and another. So as a Torah reader, which is one of my jobs, um, one of the hats I wear, it's easy for me to find the new Parsha because I just look for that empty space, that empty line. And I know, okay, here's the new Parsha. But with this, and the same thing when you come to the end of the Parsha, you know it's over because you see a space. But with this week's Parsha from Vayigash, last week's Parsha, to Vayichi, Today's Parsha, there is no space. It is what is called situma. It is completely closed. There's no empty space. Says Rashi, why is this Parsha closed? And by the way, when he says Parsha, it could be not even talking about Parsha Svayichi, because we talk about Parsha, the Parsha of the week, um, which the Torah is divided into 50 three parshas, 52 parshas. And, you know, that's a portion of the week. But there's another meaning of the word parsha. Uh, parsha comes from the word to separate. When you make the blessing on separating the dough for the mitzvah of challah, you say, lahafrish challah, to separate the challah. So we call parsha, parsha of the week, but there's another meaning of parsha, which is anytime you have a section in the Torah that is, um, separated. And how is it separated? It's separated from the words that come after it with some kind of a space. That is also called a Parsha. Those Parshas don't have names. There's many, many. Within every weekly Parsha, there could be as much as 10 Parshas or more or less, depending on the Parsha. So when Rashi says here, why is this, he says in English, why is this section, even though in Hebrew it says Parsha, not necessarily talking about the Parsha of Parsha Vechi, but this section um, that starts by Yechi, Yaakov, and Jacob lived. Even though it's kind of a new subject, you would expect it to have a, the separation. There's no, it's too much close. Why? Because when Yaakov, our forefather, passed away, the eyes and hearts of the Jewish people, of the Israelites, were closed. From what? There was already the beginning of the subjugation. The Egyptians began to subjugate, to enslave the Jews. So that's why the Parsha is closed, hinting to the fact that the hearts and eyes of the Jewish people began to close because of the oppression. Another interpretation of Rashi is 
that the closing that it's hinting to is something that happened to Yaakov himself, that he wanted to reveal the kates, the end, when is Mashiach going to come? And that was closed, it was concealed, it was closed off, it was concealed from Yaakov and he could not reveal it to the people. As explained, I think in the Medrash, the reason that it was closed from him and God hid that from him was so that he would not, because if the Jewish people knew how long it was going to be, till Mashiach would come, it would be too hard for them. So they had to have the hope at all times that Mashiach could come at any time. Verse 29, by Yikrui Yisrael Amos, the days of Israel, meaning Jacob, drew near for him to die. And he called, by Yisrael he called to his son, to Yosef, and he said to him, please, imna, or, yeah. or now, you could translate no as now or, or please. If I found favor in your eyes, place your hand under my thigh. Which as we saw by, by Abraham, when he asked Eliezer to go find a wife, he also asked him to do the same thing. This was a way of, of making an oath, since you have to do it about an object of a mitzvah. And then the only object of a mitzvah was the bris. You shall do with me kindness and truth. Do not bury me in the land of Egypt. Interesting. The verse is over. He didn't. In, in the next verse, he's going to say where he should be buried in the land of Israel. But it's already a full stop statement. Do not bury me in Egypt. Rashi, perhaps tell us why. Whenever this Torah uses expression, the days of somebody, the time drew near for someone to die, that means that he died younger than his parents. And in fact, that's what happened to um, Yaakov. He died at 147, whereas his father died at 180. He calls to his son, to Yosef. It seems like a, you know, a long way of saying it. So what Rashi says is he called to the son, to the one that had the power to implement what he was going to ask. Since Yosef was the viceroy, he had it in his power to, to insist that Yaakov would be buried in Israel and not in Egypt. Whereas the other sons, they didn't have that clout. Simna Yotchavi Shava. Rashi tells us that this idea of putting his hand under his thigh, that is means an oath. The verse doesn't say it explicitly. Rashi tells us that's, oh, that's about taking an oath. Chesed ve'emes, what does it mean, kindness and truth? Rashi says, this is what it means. Chesed that you do with the dead is called the kindness of truth. Why? Because you don't do it with any expectation that the person is going to pay you back. The person is already no longer living, can't pay you back. So what you, the kindness that you do for the dead is a true kindness. It is a altruistic kindness, and therefore a true kindness. It's not done for any selfish motivation. This has become, become a term, chesed, chesed shalemes. It's very well known that you know doing kindness for the dead is called chesed shalemes. Uh, welcome, Ken, Bruchim Abayim, Halevi. And, um, you know, the many Hevra Kadishas that are called, uh, you know, Chesed Shalemis have worked into their name. Okay, now why does he insist, do not bury me in Egypt? In other words, 
if he just says, bury me in Israel, right? I heard a great metaphor from uh, the, 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 the um, I think it's the Ben Ishchai. Ben Ishchai says that there was once a, once a guy who bought, a, bought something, he bought a coat at a store and he wanted to return it. He didn't want it. His wife said, you know, what are you wasting money on this coat? You have one already. So he goes back to the store and he says, I want my money back. There's something wrong with the coat. So they told him, it's obvious that you just, there's nothing wrong with the coat. You just want to return the coat. And you came up with an excuse that there's something wrong with it. How do we know? Because the first thing you said when you came in is, I want my money back. Right? So that's what, what he says first reveals what it's really about. He uses this as, as a metaphor for, you know, sometimes people have uh, excuses for the, why they don't want to do something. And it sounds like an explanation, but it's really an excuse. Hello, Yaakov. Can I help you? You want to say hello to everybody? You speaking sign language tonight? Okay. All right. I'm going to go back to my class, okay? Okay. <laughs> what? Speak. I don't, know where, I don't know where it is. I don't know. I can't find it. Ask mama, okay? Thank you. Bye, everybody. <laughs> wow. Cameo appearance. Parents. By our guest star. Okay, so here too... Yaakov doesn't say, swear to me you're going to bury me in Israel. His first statement is, do not bury me in Egypt. So therefore, Rashi has to explain, why not in Egypt? It's not just bury me in Israel. That would be understood. Of course, you want to be buried in Israel. That's a famous thing. Okay, so why she doesn't want to be buried in Egypt? In the end, in the third plague that's going to come on Egypt, blood, frogs, what's the third one? Lice. And that is going to, it's the, the, the earth, the soil, as the Torah describes, became... Um, filled with lice. And so he says, I don't want my body in the, the earth of Egypt um, dealing with that. That's number one. Number two, in the very far future, in the time of the resurrection of the dead, the bodies of those buried outside the land of Israel are going to have to roll to the land of Israel through tunnels, underground passages. And I don't want to deal with that. Whereas if you're in the land of Israel, you don't have to deal with that. You just pop up. That's, that's two. Both about physical discomfort, it seems, which is interesting because we're talking about a soul. Number three, the third thing is he didn't want the Egyptians to turn him into a, didn't want him to deify Yaakov. Why would they deify Yaakov? As we learned, Yaakov, uh, when Yaakov blessed the Pharaoh, the water suddenly sudden started rising for, to the Pharaoh when he would come to the Nile. So they realized he was a, a holy man. He didn't want them to deify him. Verse 30, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to lie with my forefathers, which Rashi explains means I'm going to die. It doesn't mean 
I'm going to be buried with my, my forefathers. It means I'm going to die. That's an expression of, of, of death. I'll lie with my forefathers. So when I die, you shall carry me from Egypt and you shall bury me in their grave. In other words, where they are buried, you should bury. And Yosef responds, I'm going to do as you say, but he didn't swear. He didn't take an oath. So Yaakov says to him, verse 31, and he said, promise me, so take an oath. So he took an oath. And Israel, Jacob, bows down, prostrates himself on the head of the bed. Rashi says, Israel, the father is bowing down to the son. What is this? Although the lion is king, when it's the time of the fox, bow down to him. Tala is a is a is a fox. In Hebrew, it's Shual. Shual is a is a fox. So Tala, often in, in Aramaic, the shin turns into a taf. So Tala is like Shual. Be'idne in his time, Sagidle bow down to him. Sagid means to bow down. Prostrate. The way the Rebbe explains it is that this whole idea of the oath, the reason why Yaakov wanted Yosef to take an oath and the reason that he bows down to him is because Yosef is going to be in a very difficult position. To go and tell the Pharaoh, uh, it's kind of awkward to tell him, you know, my father doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. That's a big insult to the Pharaoh. And so Yosef is going to not, is, needs to be fortified with the strength to be able to deal with that and... Um, and insist that his father be buried in, in Israel. So this is why he makes him take the oath, because when you give somebody an oath, they got to do it. And they, it gives them extra strength to do it, fortifies them to do it. And he also bows down to him. That's also a form of giving him strength. The Rebbe is you know, saying something not intuitive, because when you just read this Rashi, it sounds like you know, he's bowing to him out of respect. But... Um, I'm saying when you read the verse, he's bowing out of respect. The way the Rebbe explains it, based on Rashi, he's bowing to him to give him strength. And that's what it means that you bow to the fox when he's king. That The idea behind that is the fox is not really meant to be king. He's a fox. He's not the lion. So therefore, he needs extra strength. You need to bow to him in order to give him the strength to do his job since he's not in his natural position. He's acting as king. But according to the Medrash, it's actually helped him in a practical way, the fact that he took the oath. The Midrash says that when Yosef came to, to, to the Pharaoh and said, my father wants to be buried in Israel, of course, the Pharaoh was offended. He says, no, you can't do that. He says, well, my father made me take an oath that I take him out of Egypt and bring him to Israel. And Pharaoh is impressed by that. And he says, okay, it's an oath. I'm not mixing in with oaths. And the Midrash explains why. Because Yosef had taken an oath to the Pharaoh and said, I won't tell anybody that I know um, a language that you don't, namely the, the Holy Tongue, because um, it was a great point of, of uh, pride of the Pharaoh that he knew many languages. And so the Yosef knew more languages of him. Was, was, uh, he was embarrassed of that. So he took an oath. I won't tell anybody. So he says, he take an oath. I took an oath to my father. The Pharaoh says, okay, listen to your oaths. Keep the oaths that you've taken. So he prostrated himself on the head of the bed. He turned, says Rashi, he turned himself to the side of the Shekhinah, to the divine presence. And from here, we, we, we derive that the divine presence is present above the head of somebody who is ill. 
So Yaakov is ill. And he's bowing towards the Shekhinah that is at the head of the bed where his head was. Second explanation, what does it mean that he's bowing on the head of the bed? Why the head of the bed? Second explanation is he is bowing in uh, thankfulness that his bed was complete, meaning that all of his children were righteous. There was no wicked among them. And especially the fact that Yosef is a king and he was exiled among the non-Jewish nations. And yet he remained steadfast in his righteousness. Verse 1, and it was after these words, somebody told Yosef, behold, your father is ill. Meaning, yeah, we'll see what Rashi does. So he takes his two sons with him, who are his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Rashi says, who told Yosef? First interpretation is, somebody, not important. But his second interpretation is, this was Ephraim. This was Yosef's son Ephraim because he used to study, he was accustomed to study with Yaakov. And when Yaakov got sick in the land of Goshen, Ephraim went to his father in Egypt and told him, your father's sake. So clearly they were, there was some distance between them geographically. Yosef wasn't visiting his father every day. It was a, it was a trip. Yosef was busy running the country. And Ephraim was living apparently in Goshen studying with Yaakov. And now he comes to tell his father, your father is ill. So he takes his two sons. Why does he take his two sons? So that Yaakov will bless them before his death. And somebody told Yaakov, and here too it doesn't say who. And he said, behold, your son Yosef is coming to you. So, so Yisrael, Yaakov strengthens himself and he sits up on the bed. Now here Rashi says, he strengthened himself. He says, even though he's my son, he is a king, and I will, I'm going to give him honor. From here we derive that you're supposed to give honor to a king. We find that Moshe gave kavod to even Pharaoh. And also Eliyahu gave honor to Ahav. And we talked about this last year. Um you know, this idea of giving honor to a king, even if the inner king, king is evil. So that's a, a difficult idea. But this, is by, this connects also, we were talking before about the first Rashi says, when he bows down to him the first time, he says about, the, you know, the fox and the lion. That's a different type of bowing that you have here, which is about giving honor to the king. Verse 3, Yaakov says to Yosef, Kel God appeared to me, Almighty God appeared to me in Luz, in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply, and I will make you into a congregation of peoples, and I will give you this land to your descendants after you, an eternal, everlasting inheritance. What is, what is, what is Yaakov saying over here? Rashi tells us. He told me that I'm going to have... Um, a nation and a assembly of nations. So a nation that is Binyamin. But then he says, an assembly of nations, that's two besides Binyamin. But he didn't have any other more children after Binyamin. He didn't have any other son. So, so how do I interpret God's blessing that I'm going to give birth to an 
assembly of nations, which is at least two more children. So from this, I derived that one of my tribes is going to split into two. And that's going to be Yosef's two children, Ephraim and Menashe. So now I'm giving you that gift that you're going to be the tribe that the status of a tribe will go to your children. Otherwise, Reuben's children are not, are not separate tribes, Shimon and so forth. But Yosef, his children have the status of their uncles of being tribes. Atta now, the two children, two sons that were born to you in the land of Egypt till I came to you to Egypt, they are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh, like Reuben and Shimon, they will be to me. Reuben and Shimon are the two oldest of the, of the 12 tribes. They will be like that to me. What does that mean? That means that when the Jewish people will come to divide the land of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh are going to get, are going to take a share as separate tribes, not just as the tribe of Joseph. It's still going to be 12 tribes total that divide the land because Levi, the tribe of Levi, the, the, the priestly tribe, is not going to get a portion in the land. But your children, if you have any children afterwards, that'll be yours. They're not going to be counted. They're going to be under the Ephraim and Manasseh umbrella. Verse 7, when I was coming from Padan, meaning coming back from Laban, heading back to the Holy Land, Rachel died upon me. I was already in the land of Canaan, but on the road. There was still a stretch of land to come to Ephrat. Ephrat, you may recognize as a city to this day where Jews live. I buried her on the way to Ephrat, which is Beit Lechem. He had to get permission from the UN. They gave him special permission to bury her in Beit Lechem. Okay, so what is this whole speech? What is it about? Rashi tells us. Even now, I'm asking you to go and take me from Egypt and deal with the Pharaoh and all of this um, all of this stress I'm putting upon you. And yet, you may be wondering, what did you do for my mother? What did Yaakov do for my mother? He didn't, didn't take her. He, she was buried. She died in, in Beislechem and he buried her there. He didn't take her to Hebron to be buried with all the four with the matriarchs and patriarchs. So this might be something that, that Yosef is thinking. So he says, so Yaakov says to him, I'm making you do this whole schlep, the schlep me the land of Canaan. I didn't do that for your mother. So Rashi says further, it was, you can't even say, you can't even, I couldn't even excuse myself that it was a rainy season. It was in the dry season. And I know, says Yaakov, that Rashi tells us, that you have it in your heart against me. You have some complaint against me that I did this. So, so now Yaakov is clearing the air and he says, you should know that I buried her there by divine decree. God told me to do that. Why? Because many years later, when her children, the Jewish people are going to be exiled by Nebuzar Adam. They're going to be, if they will pass through Beis Lechem as they are leaving the land of Israel, as they're being exiled. Rachel will come out from her grave, 
she will cry and she will ask for mercy upon them. As it says in Jeremiah, a voice is heard on high. Koil, a voice on high is heard. Rachel crying for her children. And God responds to, Jer- to, to, uh, to Rachel. Jeremiah continues, There is reward for your deed, says God. The children will return to their borders, i.e. the times of Mashiach. Jewish people return to the land. Verse 8, Yisrael sees the children of Yosef and he says, who are these? Yisrael, Rashi says, he wanted to bless them. Why is he saying, who are these? He said he wanted to bless them and suddenly the Shekhinah leaves him. Why did the divine presence leave Yaakov at this time? Because, again, we, we, we look into the future. In the future, Yeravam and Achav two evil kings of Israel that would, would descend from Ephraim. And Yehubonov were also not so good, will come from Menashe. And that's why the divine presence left Yaakov. But he didn't realize why the divine presence was leaving. So he's wondering what's wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with these, with these children that they're not fit for blessing. Yehubonov says to his father, these are my children whom God gave me here. And he said, bring them to me and I will bless them. So Rashi says, They translated, God gave me here. But in the Hebrew, That God gave me with this. What's this? As we've learned in the past, whenever you say this, it's talking about something you could point to. Like when the Jewish people were at, were at crossing of the sea, they said, this is my God. Something you can point to. He showed him the document of betrothal and the ketubah that he was married to his wife, Asnas, and these are the children from, from a kosher marriage. So Yosef now begs for mercy from God about this thing, and the Ruach HaKadosh, the divine presence, rests upon Yaakov. So that's why he changed. Now he says, come and bring me, bring them to me, and I will bless them. And this Rashi says a verse from Isaiah, and which says, I, the Holy One, trained it into Ephraim. He took them on his arms. I trained my spirit into Yaakov for Ephraim's sake, and he took them upon his arms. That concludes today's partial. We'll open it up to questions and comments from our incredible audience. I have a comment, one question, actually, or a comment, I don't know. Uh, from this story that, you know, you're supposed to bow to the king, Yeah. it comes the probably idea that you the, the Jews supposed to respect the power of the miluche that they live under in this thing, you know. Whatever, whoever they is, even they're not, you know, very good, you're supposed to understand and, and, and basically respect the power of the government, the country you live in, isn't it? Yeah, we have a concept, Dina de Malchusadina. I th- I'm thinking that we had this in our JLI class where we're talking about, you know, 
anti-Semitism and quoted a verse where we say in Hallel, we say that in the future, all the goyim, all the nations will praise God. And then all the umim, which also means nations, the leumim, the nations, will also praise God. What's it between goyim and leumim? So Hasidus explains, goyim are the nations that persecuted us. And the Lu'umim are the nations that were nice to us. So even the ones who persecuted, those didn't persecute, they're all going to praise God at the end. But Hasidah says there's a third category, and that's Amalek. Amalek is completely evil. And they are not going to be around the time of Mashiach. They are unredeemable. They're destroyed. So, you know, I mentioned that in the class that we talked about, you know, you have to be careful before you label somebody anti-Semite. It could be counterproductive. And, uh, but we also pointed out that there are, you know, very clearly situations that are unredeemable. Mm-hmm. So I think here you might be able to say the same thing that, you know, if you talk about Pharaoh, that's one of the examples, or Ahav, who was a Jewish king, was an idolater, he committed a lot of crimes. But Perhaps, perhaps, as long as there's some good in them, even though they are also engaged in quite horrible things, they are still given respect. I think it's because there's a manifestation of the divine kingship in them. Even if they're misusing it in a corrupt way, but as long as they are not completely evil, you have to show respect to that aspect of kingship, of divine kingship that is manifest in them. The story of the Alter Rebbe, when he was imprisoned in uh, in the uh, Tsarist Russia, in St. Petersburg, on the moat, um, the island surrounded by the moat, and um, a very high-ranking individual came in to visit him, and the Alter Rebbe stood up, even though the person was came tried to come incognito, the Alter Rebbe knew who he was, knew that he was, and he asked him, how do you know? He says that the divine, uh, the divine um, dimension of kingship entered the room when you came in. He was able to wow. sense, he, he sensed the, the, the spiritual root of things. So that, it's still a hard concept, you know, Still a hard concept, you know. That's, that's my, you know, problem with that. Huh? That's my problem with that. Yeah, if somebody's yeah. really mean to, to you and uh, yeah, still right. respect him and all that. And yeah. yeah. I can understand also, you know, a couple more words that you know about that uh, the oath that he given to you know probably uh, when he became a wise lawyer of Egypt, probably he gave some oath to Pharaoh that he's going to be faithful to him too because everybody you know supposed to give oath to. To Pharaoh to serve him, you know, probably like you know, something like that, too. Yeah. Right. I mean, you could also look at it from a very practical standpoint. I gave you a mystical explanation. He's used the called the Balabatish explanation, you know, that <laughs> diplomatically you could get get more for your you can get more for your cause if you reminded of the story of Nelson Mandela Abdul that he was this was in the days during apartheid and he was working 
you know, fighting um, for for the cause. <clears throat> and he needed, he ran out of gas. He mm-hmm. was driving, he was the attorney, he was driving to some important meeting and he ran out of gas. And he went over to a house of white people and he says, I need, I need gas. They see a black man, they tell him to go away. So he tries another house. They tell him they don't. They won't open the door for him. So he knocks on the door of the next house, and he says, "My master needs some gas." <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Fresh taste. Yeah. Oh, your master needs gas. Sure, no problem. <laughs> so he, you know, he had to do something that was the, you know, very much against everything he was. He was fighting this whole idea that the, the white man is his master. But in order to get the gas to get to where he, his meeting that was to undo the apartheid, he had to do that. Wow. So I think from a Balabatish perspective, you could say, you know, you get more accomplished with diplomacy in that type of situation and um, to give respect. But I, I think that my initial response of, about, you know, more mystical side of it, I think that is probably more accurate. But I, that said, I think I should look into it more. Or have our research department look into it. Thank you, Rabbi Yosef. Thank you very much. Yeah. Anybody else? Question, comment? Don't be afraid. Go ahead, Gary. I thought Goshen is in Egypt, but they kind of make it seem like they're leaving Goshen and going to Egypt. So that was confusing. Yeah, that that was a good point. Yeah, I noticed that as well um, when I was reading that. And... Yeah, because in, la- in last week's Parsha, it sounds, we're going to give you the best of the land of Egypt, which is the land of Goshen. On the other end, is looking, the way Rashi put it, right? It was in Rashi. Rashi says, he came from Goshen to the land of Egypt. So, yeah, there's something there that it's... Put our research department on it. But I agree, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I've been to Goshen. There's a place in New York oh, really? called Goshen. It's a oh, small Goshen, town New York. Oh, okay. in upstate New York. There's also a Syracuse and a Rome, but they're not too far from each other. <laughs> That's a good yeah. point. I've seen that exit or the, the signs for Goshen. Very good. Well, I'll just conclude on, um, on, on this note that Rachel, <laughs> the reason that she is the one that praise why why her of all people you know Yaakov said I buried her along the road because God told me to bury her there and you know so she would be able to pray for the Jewish people as they leave yeah why her of all people the Medrash says that Rachel had had sway with God so to speak how because Rachel because the Jewish people had served idols that's why they were being sent into exile to begin with so what Rachel says to God her argument is God, you know, I know you're very upset about all this idolatry. It's very insulting. They chose these pieces of wood over you. But, and so, you, you know, there's a lot of jealousy. There's jealousy. But let me tell you what happened to me. My, I was supposed to marry Yaakov. And my father was planning to give Leah, my sister, instead. And I didn't want my sister to be embarrassed. I gave her the signs that Yaakov and I, the password that we had made up, because we knew my father was a trickster, I told her that this, the sign so that she could be married to Yaakov so she wouldn't be embarrassed. Yaakov wouldn't say, hey, you're not Rachel. So she said, if I was able to, to uh, allow Leah to have my husband, then you can also forgive the Jewish people who have brought in a foreign a spouse idols 
into the relationship, you could forgive them. So that's what Jeremiah says. There is reward for your deed, that her deed of self-sacrifice, of not wanting to shame Leah, the, the reward is that she was now able to speak up for the Jewish people and, and bring them the, the news of, of their, their future redemption. So that is the summation of today's Parsha. And we'll look forward to continuing tomorrow night, same time, same place. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. Have a Thank great you, night. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi. <clears throat>